people come to church? Not really, but... <laughs> yeah, you know there's a little saying, uh, don't just stand there, do something. And sometimes that's turned around and God says, don't just do something, stand there. Stand in prayer. Stand in faith and wait for Him. And, and once He speaks to you and ministers to you and gives you a sense of what He wants and where He is working, then you join Him in His work. Because, uh, you know, there are probably many, many instances, I guess from our own lives and the lives of other believers where they've tried to get active and do something and it's gone nowhere. But on the other hand, there is, of course, always a time to, to act. And I guess uh, a lot of modern evangelism is like uh, sort of fishing in the baptismal pool, you know, where, where the net needs to be cast out into the ocean and, and not into the baptismal pool. So that also does have to happen. When the Holy Spirit comes, we receive power, and then we are able to witness effectively for Him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And I guess that's a little bit about what I'm sort of leading to in, in my messages is uh, from, from the book of Haggai, to, to really see what, what God is going to be stirring in your hearts, if there will be a stirring, if uh, there will be a hunger for uh, fresh encounters with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, if there will be a fresh sense of, of Him speaking to you in, in the, all the creative ways that God speaks through His Word, through circumstances, through the prophetic in the church, through dreams. There are so many creative ways that God ministers to us and speaks to us. And you probably will find, as you look back on your life, that there may have even been times where God has spoken to you, even in dreams, and, and you didn't know it. Surely the Lord was in this place. And I did not know about it because it may not have been part of the tradition of the church and the emphasis of the church. So, so that's something to, to bear in mind. Don't just do something. Stand there and begin to seek the Lord and wait for Him and trust Him and begin to ask Him to uh, do a divine CPR in, in your life and in the life of this church uh, defibrillator, Holy Spirit defibrillator to, to awaken and to strengthen what remains so that, so that it does not die. So looking from the book of Haggai, um, I'm just focusing a little bit more in Haggai chapter 2 on glory and uh, the passage on glory and His glory descending, the desire of all nations coming to fill His temple. Uh, which is a magnificent word and a very, very powerful word. So Haggai chapter 2. And what I was sharing on in the last few weeks was that as we take the book of Haggai, uh, which was looking at the Old Testament temple, that they began to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed and they began to rebuild Jerusalem, the exiles that had returned and the remnant that was there. And they began to rebuild the temple because the temple was a center of worship the center of Israel's life and the center of where they would encounter God, the glory of God, where God would descend on the ark and between the slab and the cherubim and the mercy seat because no man can see his glory and live. So the mercy seat was where the blood 
was shed of, of lambs and bulls and goats to atone for sin so that through that atonement we can encounter his glory. And, and that lamb of God is Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament sense. He is the new, he is the mercy seat and he is the one who, who gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us because remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The temple now is you and me. So he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that a magnificent thing to reflect about? That the Holy Spirit dwells in you and me. And, and we surely are uh, jars, earthen vessels with clay feet. Lots of cracks, lots of brokenness. And yet God's glory in that sense dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And we are being transformed from one level of glory to another. Because the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit, shared with the Corinthian church, and we know that today for us through God's word now, that though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen... What you can taste, what you can touch, what you can behold, what you can smell, what you can hear is temporary. But what is unseen, God's word and the power and truth of the gospel and the Holy Spirit's work in your life and the, the Father's love for you and Jesus walking with you and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and the kingdom of God in our midst. These are eternal realities. What is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. And yet you, you and I can know that we can believe what is seen. And that's our struggle in life, isn't it? That uh, last week I'd mentioned something about one of the main things that are Googled. This was some of the research done in recent times. It's Googled in Australia is anxious and feeling anxiety. So feeling anxious and anxiety that despite... Uh, the fact that there hasn't been a major war or economic crisis here in a long time, there are very, very high levels of anxiety because the focus is what on what is seen besides the trauma that each individual human being experiences as a person in a f fallen world. Uh, there's this faith and this trust in what is seen and responding to what is seen. So we as God's people take our eyes off what is seen and fix our eyes on what is unseen and on the Son of God Himself who said to us, do not worry about what you'll eat or drink, what you'll wear, um, whether you're going to buy a house in Sydney because your Father knows that you have need of these things. And so don't make that the focus of your life, chasing the Australian dream of owning a house one day, even if God opens that door for you. Um, that is so temporary and it really is in a sense a mind set and a mind set is a mind that is set and God wants to break our mind that is set and renew us by his spirit collectively we are a temple of the Holy Spirit first Peter chapter 2 he brings it all together in this Amazing words. As you come to him, verse 4, a living stone. Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, 
But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So that's what the New Testament temple is, that we individually are a holy priesthood. We're living stones. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And collectively, we are a, a spiritual house. Okay, the building, all of that is completely secondary. Early churches that don't exist, if, if there were buildings that they used, we don't know of them, we don't see them, we might see some ruins of them. Uh, that's not the emphasis. You yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So my challenge to you this morning is what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about your life and what is he speaking to you about this church? Is it something that you're sensing, well, he's going to maybe shut it down or he's going to rebirth and do something new in our midst that's really for you to begin to share? Hopefully you'll be able to share something of what you sense maybe God has been saying and speaking at this time. But one thing I just feel... Uh, that I do need to speak to you as well and say to you this morning is also that God cares very, very deeply about you. He cares very deeply about you as an individual. That even though as we read the word, we know that it's about Him and His glory and His kingdom, it's also about you and me as individuals. That Jesus said this, you know, every hair on your head is accounted for. Um, God knows all about your life and worries and concerns and pressures and family issues and brokenness and hurts you've been through in life. It in no way mitigates or it in no way, uh, how can I say, sort of circumnavigates the fact that he cares very much about you as an individual, that he wants to bring renewal and revival and awakening and restoration because so much of what takes place through that is also inner healing a real healing of, of, of what's going on inside us so God cares deeply for you and for me even as he says you know don't be obsessed and fixated on on your paneled houses and, and your careers and your bills like it's so natural to do because what we fear controls us. But the fear of the Lord, when He controls us, His reign and His rule in our lives is benevolent. It's good for us. Because God is good for us. is good for our mental health and our issues and our lives and our conditions. God is health and healing for us. So Haggai chapter 2, just to get back to the text, but you'll see how it all ties in. Um, this is what the Lord in verse 6 says. The Lord of hosts says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will grant peace, 
declares the Lord of hosts. So we had spoken a little bit about the term the Lord of hosts, God the angel, the, the God of the angel armies, the, the God of the hosts of heaven. That he that is for us, there are more that are with us than those that are against us. Uh, the Spirit revealed it to, was it Elijah or Elisha the prophet, when they were surrounded by armies, God revealed in the spirit realm, the angel armies, that God is with us, that he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies, and it means that God is about to act. He's about to do something. He's about to begin something, a work, a campaign to bring about a change. And that changes. He says, in a little while, once more shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. I will shake a dramatic metaphorical language. As you know, in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, it says, he quoted the book of Joel, where it says the sun will be turned to darkness. And that didn't happen in a literal sense, but it was a dramatic metaphor explaining what was happening in the spirit realm. That God's kingdom, his reign, his rule was beginning to manifest powerfully in their midst in a new way. And he says, I will fill this house with glory. Now there was an immediate sort of sense of that prophecy that was going to come as the temple would be rebuilt and the glory of God would descend again to the ark and, 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 and to the mercy seat and dwell between the cherubim. But ultimately it was speaking about Jesus Messiah coming, the glory of God in a human being, the Son of God, bringing the reign, the kingdom of God, ushering in the reign of God at the end of the age. And bringing in the new age, when Jesus became a human being, when he was born, a dramatic event took place that changed history forever. So much so that, you know, we speak about AD and BC, uh, 2018. I know that's been changed now for politically correct purposes, but that's how they divided up time. Before Christ, after his advent. Total change. A shaking. All nations now being called to believe in God's Son, the Messiah. All nations being reached in His name. And God's kingdom and reign manifesting in a new and powerful way. And God's glory coming. A revelation of His splendor. An unfolding of His presence in a powerful direct way a sudden intervention a shaking you can do a study in the book of acts on the word suddenly they were all together in the room praying with one accord and suddenly on the day of pentecost the holy spirit descended as in a, a powerful wind from heaven it says came the supernatural wind a powerful noise and tongues of fire rested on it. So suddenly, do a, a little study on the word. Suddenly, Philip was transported in the spirit to another place. Suddenly, the jail shook. So the suddenlies where God all of a sudden, unexpectedly, out of the blue, 
in accordance maybe with a promise that he's spoken to you, but you can't exactly work out when, why, how, what's going to be happening, suddenly God comes and surprises you in your life and does something powerful and dramatic. And it is often a manifestation of his glory, of his splendor. And a renewal or a revival or awakening, an inner healing, an inner transformation begins to take place. We are encountered by his glory as Jesus touches us. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you sensed God really touched you in a powerful way? That you were in prayer or you were taking a walk in a forest and you were lost in wonder, love and praise or you were spending some quietness meditating on God. When was the last time, maybe even in worship, you were suddenly caught up and you felt God just do something in you, speak something into your life, give you something, touch you, renew you. When was the last time? Is it not a, sometimes a really sad thing that you can go for years and yet decade to decade with just like a sort of a, a real flatliner Christianity, you know? And it's not something to, I'd say, reproach ourselves about, but not a bad thing either to reflect on and ask ourselves some questions and say, Lord, give me a fresh hunger and a a fresh stirring in my heart and a fresh hunger for you. Take away my hunger for medicating myself with Netflix and the internet and whatever other stuff we can really zone out on daily. Take away that hunger. Give me a fresh hunger for you, a fresh hunger for your presence, a fresh sense that it's possible for you to touch me and revive me and, and bring some renewal in my life and in the life of of even this church, that just something of what I read about in the book of Acts can begin to take place in my life. That it's not just doesn't seem like ancient history that I read about and say, well, I haven't seen any of that happen. I can tell you, you know, God, His suddenlies and, and the way He works is so dramatic and so powerful and so out of the box that it's difficult to explain. You know, as I'm counseling men, I told you that I've got a, a mentoring, coaching, counseling ministry for men stuck in pornography, addiction, and men who love Jesus with all their heart, but they've been battling for years and years and years from the age of 12, 13, 14, 50 years, 40 years, 50, 60 years old. And I'm beginning to see change and beginning to see something unlock. And someone even spoke to me last night and said, it's like something deep down within me has been unlocked and like God has entered in and began a deep healing. Some, I cannot put it into words. I cannot explain it. And this man, I've seen him have tears. And you know, when a man has tears and a woman has tears in the presence of God and is able to cry openly before another man, I tell you, that is so often a move and a work of the Holy Spirit. That's not, not something that we do as humans. And so the glory of God manifesting and ministering and revealing himself and God touching us by his spirit happens in dramatic, out-of-the-box ways that we cannot always contain and that we cannot always manage. And that's exciting. That, that, makes, that makes it exciting to walk with God and to have this intimate relationship with him. It's exciting when 
you know, suddenly you, you, you feel you've had this very, very powerful, vivid dream and you know it's got a spiritual meaning and you write it in your journal and you know that God has actually spoken to you personally. It's a very, very exciting thing. Yesterday I was listening to a, a little testimony of Richard Vornbrand, a famous Romanian pastor, a born-again Jew, became a Lutheran pastor. And he was persecuted terribly by the communists and put into the most horrible jail in solitary confinement and then collectively underground prisons where for years they didn't see snow, trees, hear birds singing, didn't see a woman. They, they looked terrible and ragged and horrible and dirty, disheveled, got very, maybe a little slice of bread once a week, watery soup, tortured. And there the glory and the power and the presence of God would manifest in those prison cells. And he said one day, he's just saying, Lord, I feel nothing, I hear nothing, you speak to me. And and he said, Jesus said to him, what is your name? And his name is Richard and he, he couldn't answer because he... He felt like there had been these famous Richards in church history and that he didn't live up to it. And he said, Lord, I don't know. Can I take your name? And it was as if God was saying to him by the Holy Spirit, just through that supernatural encounter, yes, I want you to bear my name. Because in me and by me, your wounds have been healed and I want to manifest myself in you. And in those times, the glory of God came. And he said there were times where it was like this dark, dingy walls where they looked so terrible and so ugly and disheveled that the glory of God would manifest in those places and it would shine like a diamond. You see, these are very, very encouraging stories because it means that even in our trauma and those times we feel like we're in deepest, darkest hell. God's glory can manifest and God can minister to us and, 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 and speak to us and ask us and say to us things that we cannot comprehend, but He knows what He's doing and, and He reveals it to us. Now He says, the glory will fill this temple and that is Jesus Christ coming by His Spirit to us in a fresh way. Revealing himself to us as his children in a new way. It's like having a child and and then picking up this child and holding this child and cuddling this child. It's like God coming to us at times and picking us up and holding us and telling us, I love you. Individually, personally. Have you had times like that? So very powerful encounters. And it's got something to do with His glory. It's like God coming and touching us very, very powerfully so that we prostrate in His presence, lying flat on our faces or on our backs, lost in wonder, love and praise. I will shake, I will shake, I will shake, I will fill, I will fill, I will fill. Can you see the language? I will shake. God brings about a shaking, a renewing, something beyond our control. Maybe even shakes our lives up a little bit. I will fill, I will fill, I will fill. God filling you and me. Not you and I trying to fill ourselves up, trying to work something up. I will fill you. 
I will fill my house with glory. With his glory. Now what does this word glory mean? Well, the Hebrew sense of the word is the presence of God. The kabod, the weight, the gravitas. The majesty of God, the honor of God, the divine splendor of God. The glory, the the splendor of something. And when it speaks about the glory, uh, the Roman Empire, they they, they wanted to speak about and, and, and make known the glory of the empire. All its wealth and pomp and ceremony and military conquests and power in Rome, the glory of its empire. Well, that's got nothing to do because it's passing away. Where is the glory of the Roman Empire now? Well, it no longer exists, does it, except in ruins. But we speak about the glory of God, the divine splendor, the radiance of His splendor, the sum total of His moral attributes revealing themselves to us. John 1.14 Powerful statement here by the Apostle John concerning Jesus. He speaks about Jesus and and this is what he says. The word Jesus, this divine word, this divine God-man, the word became flesh, became a human being and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. The glory of the one and only Son. And where did they see that glory? Because there wasn't anything about him physically necessarily to attract them. But they sensed his purity, his beauty, his truth. The graceful truth teller, the authority. And then they saw something of that glory as demons were cast out, as the sick were healed, as the dead were raised. They saw something of that glory when Jesus was transfigured before them in Matthew 17 on the mountain. You know the story of the transfiguration. Very interesting is Peter's reflection on that in Second Peter chapter 1. He says, for, because there were only a handful of them, so... This is an encouragement to us to realize that God's glory and His power not only manifests in in stadiums and when many, many people are together praying. He has come and He has done that in many instances in church history. But we might begin to think that God can only move in that context or will only move in that context. But there were only a handful of disciples with Jesus on the mountain. Remember? I think it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. I think it was the four of them. But it was only a handful that he took with. And there suddenly the cloud, the glory of God, descended. And something about Jesus' divinity, his, his splendor, shone out before them. And remember, Peter was like in a daze. He didn't know what was happening. And he was like, uh, because I think it was Elijah and Moses or one of yeah, the two of them appeared to Jesus and began to speak to him supernatural experience and he was all confused and he was like saying should i build a shelter for the three for for you uh lord and for for moses and elijah and 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 he was completely in a daze like he didn't know what hit him and he says verse 16 chapter 2 
chapter 1, 2 Peter 4, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's reflecting on that experience. He saw the power of God. What else can we explain as teaching with great authority, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, walking on water, a huge net of fish suddenly being caught when he had been fishing all night. All these were like little slithers, little, just little reflections of the glory of God breaking through. But he's speaking very particularly of that manifestation of the glory of Jesus, his splendor shining where he again sensed and, and saw the supernatural identity of this Jesus, our Lord. And he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majesty or majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And so... Let's begin to have a hunger and a stirring and a thirsting after God, beginning to minister to us and and heal us and touch us and speak to us and because God desires and he pursues a love relationship with each one of us, with each of you that is real and personal, real and personal. Collectively, we know in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit came and Peter preaching and how many 2,000 were added to the church on that day. We know from revivals, the great awakenings and revivals around the world. And, and we know from particularly at this time, the house churches in China, the underground church. If you ever go and look at some of the YouTube clip of house churches worshipping, tears, crying. Everyone praying together. That's a wonderful thing. It's a powerful thing. So poor people, rural peasants, poor, have had very, very hard lives, very, very trauma-filled lives, I can tell you, very painful lives. And yet God is meeting them and they have been meeting in these these house churches and, and the glory of God has been touching them and descending upon them. These poor, disheveled people and God's power loves to manifest himself to the weak. Individually, there's so many lovely stories. I think of uh, Blaise Pascal. He was a mathematician, you know. A mathematician is like a left-brained person. Logic, you know, like Dr. Spock. (laughs) So he was a a philosopher and someone well-versed in logic and doctrine and theology. And when he died, they found a little piece of paper sewn into his jacket and they took it out and that was a common practice in that time and uh, I think he lived around the 1500s perhaps, 1500s, middle ages and there were just a few words, he said, you know, gave a date and a time and he said, 
fire from half past ten till midnight. Fire, fire, fire. God not of philosophers, but God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. God of the living, God of the dead. So he had this encounter with God that so overwhelmed him that he just penned these words in a little note. And then he, he put it in. It was such a precious experience to him that he put it into his jacket. It clearly changed his life. Another ex, uh, very interesting story is a, a Catholic theologian from the Middle Ages, the most famous one, Thomas Aquinas, who wrote great works. And again, another master of logic and philosophy and reasoning and doctrine and, and thought. And he had an encounter with God and he stopped working after that. He stopped writing and they urged him to get back to writing so that he could uh, finish his great work, his Summa Theologica. Many, many volumes of reflections on theology and philosophy. And he said that he had had such a powerful encounter with, with God that he said, it just seems like everything I've written is straw. And straw in the Middle Ages, you know, was just for for the cattle and for common use and it was just like dung, you know, it was a, a waste. It was wasteful. So everything I've written just seems like straw after his encounter. Jonathan Edwards, an amazing man who would reflect on Jesus Christ uh, in the Great Awakening pastor, who was very much a bookworm. He wasn't a visiting pastor. He was devoted to 13 hours study a day in his man's, in his study. So, interrelationally, he wasn't. <laughs> he, he probably needed a bit of coaching. Could have done done with that and say, you know, it's good to visit people and be with them and pray for them. But he was sort of one of these very very intellectual men. He used to go for for horse rides and for walks in the forest in that time. And and he said that one day he was walking and and he had such a sense of the glory of Jesus Christ that he wept for two hours. He was just shaking and weeping. See, these are things that God does in our lives. That God comes and ministers to us. Another one that I love is a, a German Lutheran pastor in World War II, locked up by the Gestapo in prison. They kept harassing him and locking him up because he ministered to the young people and their obsession was with brainwashing the young people and making them a Hitler youth. And so they were so threatened by his ministry, his youth ministry. And he would be locked up and he said towards the end of the war he was in prison and there was a bombing raid from the Allies and the bombs were falling and all the prisoners just started screaming and crying and screaming in panic and fear. And he just began to whisper the name and he was terrified and he began to whisper the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. And he said suddenly it became completely still in that prison after the bombing raid was done. It became absolutely still. And he sang a hymn, an old Lutheran hymn, a song to Jesus Christ. And he sang it and it was dead quiet and none of the prison guards came to stop him. He was, he was, they were banned, many of those hymns. He was banned, banned from doing worship and singing in prison. And not a sound, the glory of God present in a dark, dark prison. 
That's so exciting what God can do. Richard Wurmbrand tells of a, a fellow pastor who was preaching in prison to many, many other prisoners locked up by the communists. And some of the people who were locked up were intellectuals, scientists, engineers, pastors, and then just common rural people, farmers, peasants. And one of the peasants, his, his heart's desire was to lead a scientist to Jesus Christ. And there the scientist was, and this old farmer, this very, very poor farmer, he was illiterate, used to say, you know, I love my Lord Jesus, and Jesus walks with me, and he talks with me. And the scientist, one of these scientists, then said to him and challenged him and said, how can you say Jesus walks with you and talks with you, and he speaks to you? Where is he? The heavens, even the physical heavens are are just light years away. And he would challenge him day after day. And he says, what, what does Jesus say to you? What does he do when he looks at you? And he says, well, he says, Jesus smiles at me. And the scientist then said, well, and remember, these people were now all disheveled and dirty and they looked horrible and emaciated. And the scientist then said, well, how does he smile at you? And suddenly this man, he said like this, and he began to smile, no teeth in his mouth. But the eyewitness testimony is that the glory of God began to radiate out of his face. And he saw such a smile, a heavenly smile, a shining, glorious smile through this poor farmer's face that the scientist came to know Jesus Christ. And he said, I believe you, I believe Jesus smiles at you. That's the kind of thing that God can do in our lives. And so I want to encourage you to begin to hunger and to thirst after God and to know that He pursues a love relationship with you that is real and personal. And when He speaks about filling the temple with His glory, that ultimately in this New Testament sense, about shaking the heavens and the earth, that we are the temple, that we individually are the temple, and that collectively the church of the living God, whether many or few, is the temple of God. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So let's stand together and, like last week, spend some time in prayer. And perhaps there will be a bit more prayer this morning. To speak out to the Lord what He has spoken to you through this message, perhaps what He's been speaking to you the last two weeks. Why not bring that to Him in prayer now, collectively, so that we pray and see how God begins to work in our lives. Amen.